Rick Essenberg, uh, founder and president and general counsel. Do I have that right? At Wisconsin Institute you, for you Law have, and Liberty? You have that right. I have that real. So in your founding role, tell me a little bit about the genesis of the organization. Well, the genesis of the organization is that um, we had ta been talking for a while about how you know, the people on the left have this uh, army of lawyers, uh, both in nonprofit organizations and also, and this is the thing that people don't remember, realize sometimes, is, is at the private law firms where so much of the pro bono work is on the left. And, you know, conservatives don't like to govern through litigation, but you have to recognize that this is now a tool of political warfare that, you know, uh, if the other side has an Air Force, you need an Air Force. And so we decided that it was uh, time to uh, start something like that uh, on the right. Uh, so we uh, initially saw ourselves sort of as the ACLU, with, but with the politics flipped a little bit, that, that we would be people who litigated um, in uh, pursuit of uh, individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and uh, robust civil society, by which we meant the uh, space for voluntary organizations like, you know, churches and civic groups and things like that to grow. So based on the dynamics and the kinds of cases you take on, what's the kind of involvement you still have or anyone in the organization has in a courtroom setting, or is it all not so much get to that point? Well, you know, Will itself has changed over the years because we're not simply a legal organization now. We're also a think tank, and right. we have a whole yeah, we have a whole yeah, we have a whole policy research arm. But the kind of litigation that we do was was never it's it's not really the kind of thing that you see on television, where you know there's a jury <laughs> and you know there's. Um, uh, 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 Joe Pesci and, you know, some other guy, uh, you know, here. arguing <laughs> before Herman Munster to the jury. Uh, most of the cases that we're involved in have uh, really no factual disputes. They're really about what the law is or oftentimes really what the law should be because we don't know. And so if you were to come to our office and you would look at what the lawyers are doing, you would see that, you know, a lot of times they're just, they're reading and writing briefs. Um, it's not... It's, it's fascinating intellectually, but it's a little like watching paint dry if you were to hang around. <laughs> well, and I want to I talk about, you know, being a, a, a thought leader, especially in today's party. Um, but be before that, I want to talk a little bit more about, about you. Were you always conservative? Were no. Were you radicalized in college? Were you no. up in a liberal family? No, look, so I grew up, no. Um, well, so I, I grew up in... Uh, uh, a family that would be characterized as Reagan Democrats before there were Reagan Democrats. Um, uh, my dad, um, who is now retired down in Florida, uh, actually um, founded the Firefighters Union in the city of Greenfield back in the 1960s. And uh, I didn't know in my neighborhood uh, any uh, Republicans. Uh, they were all sort of blue-collar Democrats, uh, mostly of the type that would have supported uh, uh, Scoop Jackson for people that sort of know their political history, sort of the kind of uh, conservative Democrat that we really don't have anymore. So so I think for a while I would have characterized myself as a conservative Democrat. Of course, I, you know, I'm a late baby boomer, so uh, 
Um, I kind of was always a little bit taken in by our older brothers and sisters or my friend's older brothers and sisters since I was the oldest in our family, you know, who were sort of hippies and into the protest movement, and that seemed kind of cool. <laughs> but, uh, but, but that kind of wore off over time, and I think that when I entered adult, uh, young adulthood, I would have sort of characterized myself as a conservative Democrat. But it became hard to be a conservative Democrat in the Democratic Party, which was, I think, moving to the left. And um, what, when what, I was what in, made it hard? Well, they they just kept moving to the left, and okay. and you know there there was there was not much tolerance for anybody that didn't toe the line on and, social issues on well on on really on both just... because because you know, I remember I remember taking a uh, a seminar in uh, uh, in college. And it was a seminar on conservative thought, right? And so this was kind of be like like, like, like anthropology, right? (laughs) We were going to go in and we were going to drop into some island in the South Seas and see how the natives actually lived. And um, that would be I'd, interesting to take. I'd be curious to see a liberal but dissect. I, see, but I don't know how liberal he was. I think he had no. some sympathy for it. But anyways, I started to read all of this stuff. Sympathy for those dumb and, oafs. You know, I, you read Friedrich stuff. Hayek and you say, oh, my gosh, I've been lied to. Um, hmm. And so uh, I, I don't I think I ever got uh, over really that, that eye opening. It took me a while um, before I was able to sort of shed the social stigma of being a Republican that I grew up with. I tried to be a conservative Democrat, but I gave that up. In, in fact, I was the chairman of the North Shore Democrats for a while back in the 80s, but I gave that up over time, and, uh, so it was and I'm happier for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah everything, everything sort of, you know. So who was the first Republican president you voted for? Well, I voted for, I'm, yeah, I voted for Ronald Reagan. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was I was a conservative Democrat, but I wasn't crazy. <laughs> it's your out. Yeah. And then tell me a little bit about your law career. And then I guess how, how did it get you to the point where you started Will? Well, I, you know, I came, uh, uh, I went away uh, for law school, uh, to Harvard Law School. and uh, But I came right back after I graduated. And I Wisconsin joined. Wisconsin kids come home. We yeah, Wisconsin, Wisconsin kids come home. We just can't stay away. Right. And I... I, I joined uh, the law firm of Foley and Lardner, um, big firm, well known, excellent yeah. firm in Milwaukee, and I was there as a, a litigation lawyer for about 16 years. I became a partner, and, and I did a lot of uh, public law litigation. I was involved in uh, a big metropolitan uh, desegregation case. I was involved in insurance redlining and sort of cases involving systematic discrimination. And so I was all, I was doing what public policy work we did at Foley and Lardner. And then I got hired away uh, to be general counsel at a wonderful company called Wright Height Holding, which is in Milwaukee. They make uh, loading dock equipment. Uh, and uh, and I stayed there for a while, and then I got to the point where, you know, I started to have my midlife crisis. You have those. And my midlife crisis was, you know, not wine, women, and song. Maybe it should have been, but it wasn't. Um, it was, gee, I think I'm kind of overpaid and underworked. And I would really like to uh, – I spend a lot of time in my free time working on public policy, and um, I'd like to maybe do that full-time. So you're looking for meaning to... Yeah, you know, I think so. Background. Something something different. Okay. And uh, uh, so I uh, initially got a job as a, as a law professor at Marquette University Law School. I was there for four years. That was kind of fun. What did, what did you enjoy about that? Or what do you miss about that, maybe? Well, you know, I miss about that is I, I miss... Uh, you miss the students, but you also miss the chance to sort of... Uh, uh, 
think very, very deeply about the law. You know, the thing about being a law professor, it's a great gig. You teach two classes a semester, and then you spend the rest of your time sort of thinking and writing about whatever you want. And so I kind of like doing that. But but um, I... I, I guess I came to the conclusion that I wasn't really going to get where I wanted to go. I, I uh, uh, was um, uh, had been talking to uh, some people in town about the possibility of forming this legal organization that uh, I described earlier, right? Where we would have something on the right, we would have a we would have litigators for liberty, right? Uh, you know, Clint Bullock, uh, who uh, was one of the founders of the Institute for Justice and who worked for the Goldwater Institute out in Phoenix and is now a justice of the Arizona Supreme Court. He he once said that, you know, sometimes, you know, in politics, you don't just need a good idea, you need a good lawyer. So we thought that maybe we could be those good lawyers. And uh, we uh, uh, were fortunate enough to have the very generous support of the, the Bradley Foundation. And uh, uh, we were able to uh, to get started and do it in the right way, and and you know it's been we're now we just had our fifth anniversary and it's been uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. And one of the things I've really enjoyed about it is you know we've expanded. We started with three people and we now have um, fourteen. And one of the things that um, I've really enjoyed and that has both amazed and humbled me is. Um, the kind of just the quality of the people that uh, that have been interested in coming to work for Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty and how hard and how well they work. And now they're all going to want pay raises when they hear <laughs> this. You're acknowledging that they're well. You were at the point where you were overpaid and underworked, so at least these guys might be. Yeah, and I don't want to. You know, I don't want to make. I don't want to make too much <laughs> of that. I mean, everybody takes a pay cut right. when they when they go to work in the nonprofit sector. But I have sure. nothing to complain about. I'm. Still We've got some cool digs downtown. Yeah, well, they're, they're, it's shabby gentility, right? We're in an old, <laughs> we're in an old building called uh, uh, the Bloodgood House uh, that uh, it was a mansion that was built at the end of the 19th century. It's not really a mansion anymore, but but you can see some of its mansion past. It's got a lot there. of character. It's got a lot yeah, of it's got a, it's got a lot of character. Wooden creaky creaky floors. Yeah. So a little bit about the the mission of of Will. I, I, you know, this project is all about telling the stories of, of conservatives in Wisconsin that, um, you know, there's more to it than the now the nominee of the party for president. Um, whose, whose name we shall not speak. Sure, sure out, of, out of deference. <laughs> um, you know, and there's a lot about, you know, what is the guy smart? What does he know? And I think what's missing in all that is a lot of that idea leadership. So, I mean, you see that trajectory how do you get a, a, a fairly sophisticated message, like you're saying lawyers at, at Will are writing, really, really kind of intellectual, important stuff? How do you make that accessible to the masses to influence well, their opinion? I mean, it's hard, right? It, 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 you know, sort of, so, you know, when, when you're in litigation, um, your, your audience is the judge. Um, the judge should be able to understand and read a legal argument. The challenge there is we often find ourselves um, um, pushing back against uh, many, many years of 
legal tradition in the United States, which decided that economic liberty isn't liberty at all, and that the federal government actually has plenary rather than the limited and enumerated authority that it really was given by our founding fathers. But even when you're engaged in litigation, you have to understand that there's often a parallel battle being fought in the court of public opinion. And so, you know, we may be litigating about something and uh, we'd like to win it in court, but if we can draw attention to the issue and it can be addressed by the legislature, that's just as good uh, because we'll get the outcome that we sought. And, you know, um, we got good communications people. They'll t we'll take credit for it anyway. And uh, so, so that's one aspect of it. So they, so the, so they have to worry about, um, you know, how to to make this issue um, salient and and meaningful for uh, for regular people. And uh, you know, and not people who I don't want to say regular people. I mean, not people that aren't capable of understanding something, but people who don't spend all their time, you know, reading Hayek and Friedman and all of this stuff and thinking about politics. They have lives, unlike. Us. And so they, uh, uh, so so you know we need to we need to give them the briefer version because sure. that's what they have time for, and so you know we, we we have to emphasize that that what we're about is you know we're about freedom we're about uh, we're about individual liberty and 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 I think it's become easier because you know we we live in a society which has become. Um, um, flatter and more diffuse. There's there's so many more choices uh, than there were in the past, and uh, so much more individual freedom. And uh, it is, uh, I think, increasingly implausible to think that a large central government, or really even any governmental unit, can decide what's best for everyone, or even for large groups of people. And so, to me, uh, one of the things that uh, that we're about is, um, ironically, to use a word that they use on the left, we're about diversity. But we're not about diversity of of uh, you know just about diversity about what people look like. We're about diversity about how people think and a diversity of approaches. And and that's what freedom and markets give you. They they give you the opportunity to try different things. You know, I'm old enough to. Um, to, to understand that so many of the things that we take for granted today and that have immeasurably enriched our lives, and anybody that tells you that life was better in the 1960s than it is today is lying to you. I was there. It's not. What's better? It's, it's what's better, better today. Well, it's, what's better today is we have, you know, we have fantastic technology. We have fantastic choices. Uh, information is available to us at the at the snap of a finger. It is absolutely not true. I, I, I do not believe it's true uh, that the middle class is poorer today than it was in the 1960s. I was a middle class person in the 1960s. I know middle class people today, and they have, they have, they have better lives. They drive bigger houses. They have better cars. They go on vacations. I didn't fly in a plane until I was 22 years old and left to go to law school. And a lot of that is really because markets have been unleashed. And and it's because markets have been unleashed that that people have been able to exercise their creativity to to deliver the kind of just phenomenal technology that we have today, things that people wouldn't have dreamed of. Uh, you know, they, it's a funny thing because sometimes if you look back at these sort of 
projections of what the future would look like from 50 years ago or 100 years ago, they they have all this stuff that they thought we would have that we don't have today, like flying (laughs) planes and stuff like that. They didn't really see that that the uh, that the real revolution in technology would be in the um, ability to, to to store and communicate information. In your, in your last five years at Will, I mean, what do you what do you think the biggest victory or one of, a couple of the biggest victories you've scored? Well, you know, on the one hand, you know, we were very involved in uh, supporting and opposing a lot of the stuff that that sort of revolved around Governor Walker's reform and everything that happened. So Act 10 got upheld. Uh, The John Doe investigation failed, and we had our role to play in that. Uh, We, um, uh, one of the things that we did very early on is uh, uh, we were concerned that uh, the city of Milwaukee, having concluded that uh, it was free to build a streetcar because the money was coming from the federal government and money that comes from the federal government is apparently just sort of uh, comes into existence by some kind of alchemy or a spell. <laughs> Nobody actually gives it to them. Uh, that that it was okay to build a streetcar and that it was okay to make ratepayers throughout southeastern Wisconsin pay for it. Uh, we were not able to stop the streetcar, but we were able to, uh, to stop the... Uh, uh, ability of the city to shift that cost uh, to many, many people. We've had some great victories in in the open uh, records area where we we sued the uh, Senator John Erpenbach, who's one of the fleeing senators uh, uh, back during the Act 10 days, who you know, didn't want to reveal the, to the McIver Institute the information that he had about uh, uh, the communications that he had with uh, state employees during that period of time, and we were able to uh, uh, to succeed in that. We got a couple of provisions of Wisconsin's uh, onerous campaign finance laws declared unconstitutional. Um, and I'm also proud of some of the policy reports that we've done. You know, we released just recently the most sophisticated report on the effects of Act 10. We all know that Act 10 saved a lot of money. And what you hear from the left is that, well, maybe it saved a lot of money, but you know we don't have any school teachers anymore. And, and we did a very, very sophisticated um, um, analysis, econometric analysis. We have people on staff that can do that kind of thing. <laughs> That's all in-house. I can't. Yeah, I can't do it. it. I mean, I, <clears throat> you know, um, if I could have gotten through calculus, maybe I would have gone <laughs> to med school. But uh, they, uh, and, and we were able to show that, in fact, Act 10 hasn't had uh, a, a bad effect on public schools, that 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 the student-teacher ratio has not gone down, that the experience level of teachers has uh, generally uh, remained um, unchained and unchanged. And so, you know, that type of thing where we where we can uh, uh, we can provide uh, some type of immediate research and immediate um, assessment of um, some of the public policies that, um, have changed or, or that are under consideration in the state is, is also something that's been very gratifying for us. Pulling back the curtain a little bit, I mean, what's the process and what's the autonomy? Uh, what kind of autonomy is there in, the, in, in your building to tackle issues? If someone says, hey, I want to go after this, you know, what's the approval process? Do you meet? Do you well, I am for a, people to come to you? How, how does that? I am a kind and benevolent dictator. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I mean, I think we we generally have an informal process at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. And here's one thing, though, that you hear a lot of times from the left. Um, 
Uh, I mean, first of all, the left seems to think that we get all our money from the Bradley Foundation. That's not true. We get a lot of money from the Bradley Foundation, but we get a lot of money from other sources as well. And the Bradley Foundation is less than uh, half of the support that we enjoy. Uh, and the Bradley Foundation is very laissez-faire with its donors. It doesn't tell them what to do. You're not beholden. You're no, not, we're not beholden no. them. In fact, you know, Mike Grebe, you just... Uh, finished a very successful term as president in the Bradley Foundation, always jokes that he finds out about what we do the same way as everybody else when he reads about it in the newspaper. Um, but within the organization itself, I mean, we try, we've been trying to get harder as we get more people, but we try to have a relatively flat structure where people feel free to, uh, to bring up ideas about what kind of cases to bring, um, what kind of uh, studies and policy reports uh, uh, to review. And and, and we tend not to have a top-down structure because that would be kind of ironic if we did because I just banged on about how top-down structures aren't good. <laughs> and if I don't think that President Obama in Washington, D.C. Um, is the font of all wisdom and, and uh, can decide what to do, then I certainly don't think that me in the little Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty is the font of all wisdom either. We have a lot of really good, smart, and energetic people working for us, and they come up with lots and lots of great ideas, probably more than I do. Are you able to talk about some projects on your radar for the next legislative session or things coming up? Well, you know, we just started a Center for Competitive Federalism that we're very excited about. Uh, the Center for Competitive Federalism is, is uh, I think, designed to engage in policy research and strategic litigation uh, to promote the kind of federalism that we think our founding fathers intended. That is, federalism. And it's not just about states' rights, incidentally. I would never use that term to describe federalism because I think a competitive federalism requires sometimes that the states be liberated and sometimes that they be constrained. They have to be constrained because for competitive federalism to work, citizens of the United States have to be able to move across state lines. There has to be interstate commerce because the states are in competition with each other and the privileges and immunities and rights of individual citizens of the state have to be respected. On the other hand, uh, uh, our founding fathers thought that the federal government would have its realm of responsibility in which it would be supreme. The states would have its realm of responsibility. The two would check each other because they were in competition, and that would promote individual liberty. So that's a project that we have. We're continuing, I think, to file economic liberty cases. Um, we're looking at uh, different vehicles for K-12 reform. We recently released a report on educational savings accounts, which are sort of a, an exciting new idea in the area of school choice, which would, would actually fund students and not schools so that families would be able to take uh, funds for public education and use them in a variety of different ways other than simply paying school tuition. So uh, that's an idea that, um, that we'll continue to explore. I think that there will be a great emphasis on occupational licensing, uh, which sometimes limits the ability of uh, middle-income to low-income people to earn a living. Uh, I think we're going to hear a little bit more about the minimum markup law, which, uh, uh, in which Wisconsin attempts to protect consumers from low prices, something which we can all agree is just a wonderful, wonderful objective. You don't need to pay more for your beer than you have to. That's right. Uh, final question, and I think this is where it's, it's relevant to the landscape today. How does conservative thought survive the next four years if the Republican nominee is the leader of that well, party? Well, you know, here's the problem that I have. The problem I have is that I can't decide 
whether it would be better if Donald Trump wins or whether Donald Trump loses. I say that it might. I say that it might not might not be good if he wins, because the problem I think with Donald Trump and, and we we can talk about you know his character and we can talk about his honesty and really when it comes down to that. Um, uh, he's he's at least a wash with Hillary Clinton, whose whose who's character and honesty is, uh, and and I would say competence and understanding of the issues is is also rather underwhelming. But the problem I have with Donald Trump is that Donald Trump is is I think at his heart a statist. He is a big government guy. He is not a guy. You know he's he's you know people say he's a businessman. He must be for free markets. I. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Businessmen are not always for free markets. Sometimes they like markets to be rigged in their favor, yeah, especially at a certain level. Yeah, like and that. so so the problem is that uh, the the thing I cons- I'm concerned about is that if Trump were to become the leader of the party for the next four years, if Trump were to become president, then the Republican Party would be less about limited government and individual freedom, and more about nationalism and uh, authoritarian statism, albeit exercised on behalf of constituencies other than the Democrats. And that's not a party that I think um, is, is fit to lead us into the 21st century. That's not an emphasis that I think is fit to lead us into the 21st century. But I don't know. I don't, I mean, first of all, I don't think that, I don't, if I had to predict, I don't think Donald Trump is going to be elected president of the United States. And if he is, I'm not sure that he's going to be able to I, I, he may turn out to be somewhat of a passing figure, figure, and the real challenge, I think, for us as to conservatives is to define conservatism for the 21st century. We always want to go back to Ronald Reagan, um, but the problems that we face in 2016 are different than the problems that we faced in 1976. We have to reinvent a conservatism for the, the, the 21st uh, century and not simply repeat the same nostrums that we we relied on back in 1976. And we have to understand that there's a reason that Donald Trump happened, that there was a sort of a percentage of our voters who, who weren't happy with what we were talking about, that, that we had become too good at defining what we are against as opposed to explaining what we are for. And we allowed ourselves to be perceived as, as our, the party of Wall Street, which I think is a little ironic because I think Democrats are much more favorable to Wall Street than, than the Republicans ever have. And so I think as conservatives, um, uh, we, we really are faced with a, um, with, with a challenge, maybe, maybe a time in the wilderness if, if Hillary Clinton is, is elected president. We have a third straight Democratic term. But, but we need to figure out what we're about and how to articulate that. And um, that, that is a daunting challenge, but I think an exciting one, particularly when you work in the realm of, of conservative policy and ideas. We have our work cut out for us. I think that that was demonstrated for us uh, this year and, and is going to be true no matter how the election turns out. Well, we'll look to Will for some of that thought leadership and ideas next four years either way. If someone wants to learn more about the organization or or support it however what's the best way to get in touch reach out find out what you're doing well you know i'm 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 not i'm not the best at social media our website is www.will-law.org and you can follow us on facebook and twitter you're everywhere you need to be yes absolutely rick essenberg thank you for the time 